welcome to the Subtext Podcast. This is Brian James Polak, the host of this podcast. I am recording this from beautiful northern Wisconsin. I'm on a uh, sort of mini self-imposed writer's retreat once again, and uh, I forgot my recording equipment, so I had to quickly record this intro and outro on my iPhone. Uh, So I'm going to keep this short and sweet. This month, my guest is Carrie Bentley Quinn, uh, a playwright I have known for several years, and as you'll hear in this conversation, have only had the chance to uh, meet her in person a couple times, but I have relished both times. She's a lovely person and an incredibly talented playwright, uh, and somebody I really wanted to talk to for a long time for the pod, so I'm glad it finally worked out. Uh, for those of you listening for the first time, uh, please subscribe if you're into this sort of podcast. Um, and you can do that on any podcast delivery platform that is to your liking, such as Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate and review the show if you are so inclined to do so. I appreciate everybody who does that. You can also follow us on all the social media channels. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, find us there. Carrie Bentley Quinn is a playwright based in New York City, originally from Stratford, Connecticut. Her plays have been presented or developed with Lark Play Development Center, RIP, Lesser America, Halcyon Theater, Theater of No Premier Stages, Astoria, Performing Arts Center, The Brick Theater, The Secret Theater, Caps Lock Theater, The Fringe Festival in New York City, Team Awesome Robot, and many others. Carrie's full-length plays include Paper Cranes, The Unlikely Ascent of Sybil Stevens, The Ocean Thought Nothing, Prepared, The Worst Mother in the World, Wendy and the Neck Bear, <laughs> Neck Bears, <laughs> Wendy and the Neckbeards, as well as Hyannis. Carrie was a co-founder of Mission to Dit Mars, a theater company based in Queens, New York City, which we talk a little about at the top of our conversation, which was recorded at Diamond Dogs in Astoria, Queens, June 30th, 2021. Yeah, so where are we? Where are we? Yeah, where are we right now? What is this bar? This is Diamond Dogs Diamond in Dogs. Astoria. Um, shout out to Diamond Dogs in Astoria. Shout out to Diamond Dogs in Astoria. It's a, it's really nice. It's a, They do great cocktails. Um, coming here a few years now. Um, we have a lot of cool bars like this where there's like backyards and you can you can go next door to the pizza place and get pizza and bring it over yeah which is really nice um but i've been living here so long i've become a regular at lots of bars <laughs> in astoria <laughs> one of the things that i i knew about you but i didn't know the content i didn't know what it meant i didn't know the context of it was you were part of a theater company called mission to ditmar yeah mission to ditmars M- mission to ditmars Plural. and yes. i didn't know what that meant i didn't know what ditmars yeah. i didn't know ditmars was a place until t- literally today i got on the subway to come here and ditmars is like the last stop or something yeah in, it's the last on stop the, on, on the, the nw so ditmars is the most i guess like north east subway stop in astoria i don't know i'm directionally impaired i could be wrong about that it's the last stop so there's two lines that go through astoria there's the nw which goes one way and then the mm-hmm. R train which goes the other way and then it goes towards like Elmhurst and Jackson Heights but this is kind of like the train that ends and so um, 
we came up with the idea was me, Don Nguyen, uh, and Laura Pastrunk and our friend Christina Ship, who wound up moving to LA like the next year. And we went to we went to Sweet Afton, which is another bar just around the corner, and we were having this conversation about the theater group that we had been in together had kind of like fallen apart and we didn't have a writer's group anymore. And we were joking about how we always had to travel because there was nothing going on in Queens. Like we always had to go to Manhattan or we had to go to Brooklyn. And we were like, wouldn't it be cool if we had a writer's group in Queens? And then we were like, oh, what should we call it? And Don loves space puns. Like it's his favorite puns in general, but space puns are his favorite. (laughs) And Laura, who is super smart and awesome, but she's usually pretty quiet. She all of a sudden she goes, what about Mission to Ditmars? And I was like, oh my god that is the greatest name ever Mm -hmm. so we started it and then christina moved to la and it kind of fell away and then my friend meredith packer who i knew from doing another theater project who was producing and directing she also lived in astoria and lived on ditmars Mm -hmm. and so i brought her into the fold and so the four of us this was in 2011 or 2012 um we got together and we hosted a, a mixer um of Queens artists and said what would you like us to do because we weren't sure we wanted to be a theater company we didn't want to produce we knew that right away um I had been part of a company that did productions and it's just really stressful and it's a lot of money um and we had no money we had zero dollars and so we were like what what can we do and overwhelmingly the people said we want a playwriting group and Mm -hmm. so we started the propulsion lab writers group in 2012 and the Launchpad reading series, which was we took like three or four plays from the lab and we would present them as full public readings. And we did that for nine years. And you carried the pun through We carried everything. the pun through literally everything. That's yeah. Amazing. And I mean that was not there were email chains with us and our writers that were just puns. Uh, we love a space pun. Um And so, yeah, we did that for nine years and we developed more than forty full length plays. Um Propulsion Lab was, we were very focused on first draft Mm -hmm. um, because that was my problem and that was Don's problem that we would, we're both kind of perfectionists and so we really wanted that first draft process to be a really safe, so we did like the Liz Lerman thing, we were very protective of our writers, but everybody in Lab finished their plays every year. So Mm -hmm. you would start a new play at the beginning of the season, you would finish a play by the end of the season, and then you would either have a full-length reading in the Launchpad reading series, or you would have a 10-minute excerpt read at All Systems Go, which was our year-end culminating event. Mm -hmm. And we got free space forever because there was no theater in Queens. We had the secret theater we had, which is reopening, um, Astoria Performing Arts Center in Queens uh, Queens Theater in the park, Mm -hmm. which is in Corona Park. Um, but there really wasn't an established Queens theater community at all. And we sort of built a community over the course of nine years, which was really great. Mm. Um, and it was, it was awesome. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. And we, we just wound down over the last year. There were like a lot of reasons to do that. Um, the pandemic was sort of the nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, but we felt like we'd gone as far as we could go. And we had established this community of writers who are still very close. And um, it was just a really joyous experience. And I wrote like six full-length plays in that lab. Um, and a lot of my writers wrote a lot. And then we started to do like second step dramaturgical stuff where we did this lawn series where 
okay, you have your first draft done, now what? And so we'd hook them up with a director and actors and kind of do like a 12-hour process. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, they'd have a reading. And they could do whatever they want. It could be a public reading. It could be a private reading. Um, But yeah, it was a really really great experience. And it taught me a lot about being a leader, which I kind of tended to not be. I was usually sort of going to the writers groups but I'd never led my own and I, I think I learned how to be a good advocate um, and a good a good leader mm-hmm. which was important it's not necessarily something I'd want to do forever um, but it was it was it was really great and it was really sad like we just we just wound down over the past six months um, so it's bittersweet, but at the same time, I feel like I've seen so many theater companies just spectacularly break up where now everybody hates each other. Mm. And we didn't want to get to that point. We wanted to go out on a high note. And it's just that, you know, Don's working, I've been working, Meredith and Laura have their own things. And it was just getting harder and harder and harder to get the four of us even in the same room, right. let alone run an entire company. And the fundraising and all of that stuff, it's exhausting. You know, we got grants and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really proud of that company. And we, we've developed a lot of excellent work that's been produced all over the country. And mm-hmm. so it's, it, I'm, really, I'm really proud of it. But yeah, my, our ties to Queens are very strong. And I still feel like maybe it'll happen. Maybe we're going to have theaters here. Um, but I don't know. It didn't, it didn't go, it didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. There was a time where we really thought that Queens was going to become like a premier arts destination. Mm -hmm. And for, I think there was a lot of development and wealthier people moving here, especially in Long Island city, which is now like pretty fancy. Mm -hmm. And there was like nothing there when we started, there were a few high rises, but there was really, it was a ton of space was available. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's definitely weird that it's over, but at the same time, it's not over. Like we still have these connections. We're still going to do projects together. It's just not going to be as formal, mm-hmm. you know. How long have you been living in Queens? I have been living here since two thousand and four. So I have been here for seven, Jesus, seventeen years. That's the actually that's the longest. I lived in. Bridgeport, Connecticut was where I was born. So I was there until I was about three. And then I lived in Stratford for till I was 17. So I think this is actually the longest I've ever lived anywhere in my life, which is bizarre. But here we are. So is Stratford your hometown? Mm-hmm. Yep. Stratford, Connecticut. It's between Bridgeport and New Haven. So it's about 90 minutes or so from here. And it's this weird tri-state slash New England because Southern Connecticut is yeah. very like the tri-state but you're still in New England so it's this very strange I know I remember uh, in my years living in Boston I've always been like a Boston Boston's my home city even though I grew up in New Hampshire Boston's kind of the capital of New England uh, but when you are a New England sports fan mm. uh, you know it's pretty clear if you're from Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Your allegiances are going to be with the New England, Boston teams. Red Sox, But then there's always, like, every few years, there's, like, a little bit of, there's an article where they're like, here's where the line is drawn in Connecticut. Where it's like, this part of Connecticut is... Yeah. There's, there's the Giants. This part of of Connecticut is New England Patriots. It's so weird because... My town was like, we're literally like on that dividing line between like tri-state New York allegiances. Mm -hmm. So I grew up a Mets fan. 
Mm-hmm. So, but if the Mets lost, then I would root for the Red Sox against the Yankees. <laughs> so my family hated the Yankees, right. but they also hated the Red Sox, but they hated the Red Sox less than the right. Yankees. Right. Um, we right. were not a football family. I think half my friends from Stratford are Patriots fans and half of them are Giants fans. Mm. Some of them are Buffalo Bills fans, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I was a hardcore Mets fan. I still am. I still go to the game. I mean, they disappoint me every every well, year. Well, that's why they exist. Yeah, to just disappoint <laughs> me. I mean, they have the best pitcher in baseball right now, and they right. still disappoint me. Um, love you, DeGrom. Um, but yeah, it was really weird growing up. Um, I felt such a pull to the more New Englandy part of New England, but it's just a weird cultural thing in Fairfield County, and everybody thinks that Fairfield County, Connecticut, is like super rich. And while that's true, you're talking about Greenwich and Westport, where I grew up. Like Bridgeport was, you know, is economically fraught to say the least. Um, my town was very ethnically diverse. Um, we had a very different experience than people who lived. 20 minutes away um so yeah it's this very weird little slice of the world where it's kind of like the commuters to new york but we're also on long island sound and there's also you know that new england culture so i always felt like sort of an imposter in both worlds in a weird way well you wrote you wrote this play hyannis which when i read it i felt like like this was written by somebody who really sincerely gets mm. New England mm-hmm. you know and uh, I I knew you grew up in Connecticut mm-hmm. but I was I just assumed that you spent time in these areas of mm-hmm. the of, of the of the region and uh, and I was surprised I was surprised when when we talked or message I can't remember how we communicated but um, you were like, I I hadn't been to Hyannis. No, I'd never been to Hyannis, no. I've been to the Cape, like, tons. Um, I only went a couple of times growing up. Um, my family reunions were in the Berkshires, so I come from, like, a long line of, like, Massachusetts mountain people, really. Mm-hmm. My lineage, I actually did an Ancestry.com thing, which is really interesting. My lineage goes all the way back to, like, Narragansett in the 1600s. Wow. Yeah. So, like, my people were pilgrims and or, you know, brand new immigrants to America from England. There is no kind of ethnic diversity in my background. I am extremely white. It is all English, German, Irish. Yeah. A lot of English, a lot of Irish. Um, But on my father's side, it's very colonial New England. It was Massachusetts. It was Rhode Island, Vermont, a lot of people in Vermont. So I've always felt this, like, weird... Even though, like, my experience with Massachusetts was mostly in the Berkshires and not so much the coast, I grew up in a coastal town. Right. So there is that culture and that kind of attitude in the working class boat people, for lack of a better term. Um, You know, we have a huge marina in Stratford. There's a huge boat culture. And, like, I sort of was just able to combine, like, my experience growing up working class in a blue-collar area and the people that I knew, even though we weren't, we certainly didn't have a boat, but people I know did, and my experience of the Cape. And I think that why I chose Hyannis was because it was a place I hadn't been, and I wasn't going to project my own 
stuff onto it and that I could kind of just do the research and kind of let my experience of different places kind of inform the text rather yeah, than right. so when I got to go which was just a few months ago we were we were up there in April um, and I got to go to Calamus Beach and I got to go to the Main Street and all these places that I wrote and I was like I think I did okay like it didn't not line up with what I thought right um, and the people and kind of the way people spoke um, so that was kind of cool to know that I hadn't gotten it wrong but I think it was sort of like it's always been a little bit of an identity crisis because I've always related so hard to the New England ethos and sort of thing in general mm -hmm. but because I was you know when you're in Connecticut people are like that's not really New England and I'm like yeah I know but it kind of is at the same time like we have our own you know if you're in New London that's new that's New England you know if you're at the O'Neill that's New England but it's 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 a very bizarre but thing. yeah and, and also what I've learned I've been I've been spending years thinking about what it means to be from New Hampshire and what it means to be a person from New Hampshire mm -hmm. a New Hampshireite a person that lives there and I've talked to some people who, who grew up in New Hampshire and live in New Hampshire and I feel like this applies anywhere in any state in the country it so much just based on your own individual experience and context oh totally you know people yeah. who are my closest friends from my hometown in New Hampshire grew up similarly to me but their experiences and point of view are just so different so what it feels like for them to be from New Hampshire is not what it feels like for me to be from New Hampshire you know mm -hmm. so so your experience of being from Stratford or being a New Englander isn't the same as your freaking neighbor you know no not at all I mean even in my town I mean we had very disparate neighborhoods so I grew up in a place it was called Paradise Green which sounds very idyllic it was it really does it was really not uh, it sounds like had, paradise like, it, it was not <laughs> um, it's a very nice place to grow up like lots of neighbors I had lots of friends growing up on the same street like right across the street um, you know we had a little square down the street that was a gazebo and like corner stores but there was also a lot of addiction and a lot of alcoholism and a lot of craziness going on but then on the other side of town near where I went to elementary school we had the projects that were on the Bridgeport border but then you have Orinoke which is all the way in the north of Stratford which is very wealthy people we're talking you know million dollar houses and then there's Lordship which is the coastal community and they all lived on the beach and so that was the coat that was like the coastal community which is where i always wanted to live i was so jealous of anyone who lived in lordship because i'm such a water baby um and you know all different neighborhoods and so it really depended on where you lived and what part of strafford you lived in is the kind of experience that you had mm -hmm. and it was very it was very different i had a very different upbringing than someone in lordship or someone in um barnum village or someone you know it was it, it's it's weird it was like four towns in one in a lot of ways well, how did what was it about your upbringing that that pointed you toward becoming a playwright <laughs> oh many things well i mean i've been writing since i was very little um i wrote i started writing when i was like in kindergarten i think i was advanced in i mean a lot of playwrights are it's not special but I was very advanced in uh, English and writing and stuff like that when I was little. Um, and I remember my grandmother bought me a, a typewriter 
dating myself. Here, <laughs> but um, she bought me a typewriter when I was six or seven, and the first thing I wrote was a book of poems about whales, um, which is very on brand for me, by the way. Um, right, yeah, I saw uh, a recent painting you made of, of a whale. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's been my pandemic art, has been me uh, rediscovering painting, which is something I also used to do a lot when I was younger, but I, I got frustrated. Writing came very naturally to me, and painting and drawing took a lot of effort, and I thought that because it took so much effort that I wasn't actually good at it, which isn't true. It just didn't come easily to me like writing did. So I thought that, you know, writing was my thing that I did and it was easy and I did that. Um, there were a lot of things I, I didn't really start doing theater. I wasn't one of those people who had been doing theater since they were tiny. Um, my first thing I was in was The Wizard of Oz when I was in sixth grade. Uh, I was a munchkin slash Oz person and I had a great deal of fun. Um, I wasn't very good yet and anything but it was really fun to be a part of it and I kind of loved the whole rehearsal process and I kind of loved um the camaraderie and and I had been bullied a lot that year and I found like my dorks to hang out with and that was cool like so I was like okay and then I saw Les Mis the next year it was the first Broadway show I ever went to on a field trip and I was like I want to do that um, as a performer both as yeah. a writer, like, I really wanted to be a musical theater composer. I, there was one problem. I have not one lick of musical talent. Like, in, in terms of, like, I used to sing. I was fine at singing. Um, music, I could play, like, really basic acoustic guitar. But anytime I tried to write songs, I just couldn't. I didn't know how to play piano. I tried to teach myself. I just don't have that. My brother plays drums, he plays bass, he plays guitar, he has like musical aptitude. I, my dad played guitar, I have, I just, I have two left feet. So I was a very frustrated musical theater composer who wound up becoming a playwright because I couldn't actually write musicals. Um, <laughs> so I really wanted to, I wanted to be the next Jan Andrew Lloyd Webber. I just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't in the cards. So I wrote my first play when I was 12 or 13 and we on your there. own motivation yeah my own my own motivation I wrote it was called heaven on earth and it was basically like kind of a bastardization of West Side Story with songs that I wrote to like the music from cats because I just <laughs> I couldn't compose my own music but I was confident I could write better lyrics um, uh, I'm not sure if that was entirely successful. We rehearsed it in my back my back room in my house for just months, and we were actually going to do it. And then, like, I went to the principal of my school and, like, brought him the script. And I was like, we want to do this. And he was like, there's swears in this. Like, we can't. Because, of course, I mean, I was very grown up, you know. And I was like, well, this is how people talk. Um, so it was littered with profanity and sexual situations. And I'm like 12 years old <laughs> who watched way too many soap operas. So there was just a lot of like rolling around on the ground, making out kind of stuff. Right. Um, I used to find this really mortifying, but now I just think it's cute. I love it. It's, uh, and, <laughs> it's and, funny. And, and I've heard several times in, in these conversations writers refer to that first play that they wrote at like an obscenely young age and one of these times I'm I'm hoping that 
the person I'm talking to has access to it. Like, and like, I like, don't. like it can be like read in some way. I I'm have so, one that I do. I'm so like desperate to like hear what these early plays oh sound God. like. So when I was 15, I wrote a play called Five, and it was five women, and it was monologues. This is also very on brand for me. And a lot of it was just me paraphrasing Tori Amos lyrics. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty much it. But we actually did the play. Mm-hmm. So my drama teacher, Miss Cheeseman, who was very supportive of me, let me direct it. And we did it in the annex at the Stratford Library when I was 15. And that was my first production. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a glorified stage reading. But the girls memorized it. Um, I had several of my very dear friends in it. Um, at the time, and which was, of course, emotionally fraught when you're a teenage girl and you're trying to direct your teenage girl friends in a play. Um, and I still have the original script with all of my notes on it, which is literally amazing. Oh, my God. I bet the notes, I kept it. Are, the notes are, are probably even better than... The notes are absolutely hilarious. Like, I'm like, she needs more intensity and, like, all this <laughs> stuff. So, I mean, I haven't, I haven't actually picked it out and read it in a really long time, but I kept that script. It's bound. I have all the notes. I have um, the program, like, I kept. So I have a box in my house. Um, I call my Broadway box that a friend of mine and I kind of collaged a big wooden box with cutouts from playbills. <laughs> so we spent hours in my room listening to, you know, Alanis Morissette or whatever and Les Mis soundtrack over and over again, cutting tiny pieces out of playbills and just collaging this box. So this box is covered with like Sunset Boulevard from 1996 and like programs of musicals mm-hmm. I was in. And that's the box where I keep all of my stuff so all of the programs from my shows um all the scripts that i want to keep like i'm not the kind of person who needs to keep every version of a rehearsal script but once in a while it's nice to just keep something that you took notes on to kind of remember what that process was like mm-hmm. um yeah playbills from shows i was in playbills from shows that i love like all of my broadway programs from when i was a teenager and it's just this like big box of cool but it's starting to overflow, and I'm going to have to put some stuff in storage. So were you just, like, steadfast from this early age that, oh, yeah. about being a playwright? Like No. I Well, I went on a journey. I was going to be a playwright, and then I decided I was going to be an actor because I got the acting bug big time. So I started performing when I was in when I was in high school and I went to a magnet school called Regional Center for the Arts, which was an after school program in Bridgeport that brought in kids from different towns. Mm-hmm. And they really just kind of let us do what we want. We wrote plays, we performed, we sang. I was in the musicals in high school, like I was acting and I just got the performer bug. And when I was a teenager, I was fearless. Like I would do anything. Like I loved the feedback. I loved the energy. And then when I was 16, a musical that we wrote in the program got accepted to the American High School Theater Festival in Edinburgh. So we got to go do the Fringe between my junior and senior year of high school. So I got to be at the Fringe for two weeks. We did like four days in London and then two weeks in Edinburgh. As and a performer. We, as a performer. And I had, I had helped write the musical. I wrote some of the lyrics. I wrote some of the, um, the text. But I was, we were, I was a performer. And I just really wanted to be an actor. So I, when I went to college... I was an actor, and I very quickly realized that I did not actually want to be an actor. But I think that's a lot of playwright stories. Well, what, what was the trigger for you? 
I think when you're young and you're doing this thing and you've kind of developed your own community and, and your style that you're kind of the big fish in a little pond. And so you might be one of the best people in your 10 person class, but when you get to New York City, you are not the, even in the top mm-hmm. 10%. Um, I started to get really terrible stage fright. Really? Yeah. I went through a lot between um, high school and college. There was a lot of stuff that happened at home, and I, I think my, my confidence got shot, and I think I just realized that um, this was also the early 2000s when girls were expected to be very slender, mm-hmm. and I was not. Um, what I should have been focusing on, I think, was being um, a, a comedic actress, but I was very committed to being a very serious dramatic actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was naturally funny, and I think I kind of should have stuck to that. I just, I hated auditioning. I hated it so much. I tried. I did auditions, and I just felt so exposed and so vulnerable. And, like, that wasn't the life I wanted. I didn't want to be in the back of a tour bus. I don't think I wanted the hard part. You were, you described yourself as this fearless teenager before... What did some like? Did you just slowly change over time, or did something? Did no. something happen? Mm, my so m- my home life sort of fell apart in kind of spectacular fashion. Um, my mom tried to commit suicide my senior year of high school, and a week later, my father went into rehab for alcoholism. So they were like one floor away from each other in the state hospital. Um, and I had to take care of my 13-year-old brother and try not to get CPS called on us. Um, and, like, there was a lot more that I, it was a crazy year. When I think about it, I'm like, I'm not really sure how I got through it. But I was so focused on getting to New York mm-hmm. that I was like, nothing is going to stop me. Um, and just, like, a lot of stuff happened that I think shook my view of the world as I never thought the world was a safe Place, but I thought it was safer than it was. Mm-hmm. And I think I went into school having dealt with the fallout of this. And, like, when you're in school and you're, you're you know, I mean, my town wasn't that small. We had 50,000 people. It wasn't a tiny, tiny town. But I was in a kind of neighborhood where, like, everybody knows your business. And it's really tough when you become known as the girl who has the crazy family, mm-hmm. you know? And so I really think that when I got to New York, I was traumatized. Um, and I wasn't in therapy and I was shell shocked and I don't think that I realized how traumatized that I was at the time. I realize it now. Um, and also I didn't have any financial support. You know, my parents divorced, you know, kind of, they co-signed my student loans, but it kind of knocked out any sort of financial support I was going to get. Um, and so by the time I was a sophomore, I was working 30 hours a week plus going to school to support myself and to I took out all my own loans um and by the end of my sophomore year I had to move into my own apartment because I couldn't afford student housing anymore and I think that um there was just more at stake where I was like how am I going to be able to like afford a life doing this where were you in In New York I was at Pace so I was downtown I was at uh like uh near City Hall Mm -hmm. so right near the Brooklyn Bridge and like five blocks from the World Trade Center Um, so I went there, I started school in 99 and I loved it. I loved being downtown. I loved, I lived in downtown for two years. I loved it. Um, my classmates and I are very bonded and we're, um, 
any sort of differences we had kind of went away after 9-11 happened. Um, but um, I think it was good for me because I think it was like, okay, I like performing, but I don't love it to the point where I want it to be my life. And I think that was a very valuable thing for me to learn. But I wrote the whole time. So I wrote a play um, my junior year that got produced in the student directing festival and it got a better response than any of the acting stuff I'd done. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like, well, I started off as a writer and then I sort of veered off into acting and now I'm writing again and people are really responding to what I'm writing. Um, so I just sort of decided to go the playwriting route. Um, by the time I graduated, I did one summer of auditions and I said, I'm done. I mean, I was told multiple times to my face I needed to lose weight. And I weigh less than I do now, <laughs> you know? And I just, I got so tired of being sized up by my appearance and my body. And like, I just felt very feminist about it. And I just started to like reject that. And I was like, no, I'm a writer. Let me, let me try to do that and see how it goes. And, but it was rough. I mean, when you graduate and you realize you've devoted, you know, almost 10 years of your life and 10 years of your life when you're 22 is a lot it's half your life it's half yeah. your life to something and then you realize it's not going to work out but at least I had this and I knew I could do this so I took a class at Gotham Writers Workshop when I was 22 I think like maybe a year after I graduated the year after I graduated college was just like an abyss I just was like I don't know what I'm going to do I was lost. Like, I was waiting tables. I was paying my bills. It was fine. I had great friends. I was, everything was great. But I was also like, what the hell am I supposed to do? So um, I took a class at Gotham Writers Workshop with uh, Richard Caliban, who's wonderful. Um, and he ran another playwrights group I was in. And that was, like, the first playwriting group I was in. And it was really funny because it was, like, me and a bunch of, like, 40-year-olds. You know? Mm -hmm. And they were blunt as a spoon, let me tell you. There was no kind of Liz Lerman in this group. <laughs> this was just, like, people who, you know, they weren't professionals, but they certainly had opinions. Um, but I got to see my work on its feet. I got to see readings. I got, you know, I made connections. And then around 2005, I met my friend Alejandro Morales, who is the uh, – the co-artistic uh, director of Packwallet Productions, and they did, they produced Adam Sinkowitz's Nerve back in 2000, I think it was 2004, 2000, no, it was 2006. Mm -hmm. um, and I did box office for them. And so that was how I kind of got to know Adam. That was how I got to know Alejandro and Scott Ebersold, who wound up directing my first big production. And so I kind of got in with that company that way. Um, and I felt like so many people like were able to do these like unpaid internships and I never had that option. I was working full time and going to school. And then when I was out of school, I had to pay my bills. So I was waiting tables, you know, 40 hours a week. I, I couldn't just go tear tickets for a New York theater workshop in my spare time, you know, um, cause I didn't have any. So I really felt so behind everybody else, but they really took me under their wing and they really showed me the ropes and introduced me to people I needed to meet and like you know I became part of their writer's lab and that was when everything sort of started to really kick off for me how so like what were you what were you writing did your writing change or evolve in this period oh yeah I took a lot more risks um so my first play the permanent night well, that wasn't my first full-length play, but that was the first one that got done, was at Fringe in 2008. Mm -hmm. They didn't produce that play. Um, I actually, my friend Romina uh, Talabukin, wonderful woman, uh, 
worked with me at, I was working at a hedge fund during the day to pay my bills. And she was a theater producer. And she decided that I sent her the play because we were just talking at work about theater. And she was like, oh, I produce theater. And I was like, cool. So I sent her the script and she was like, we should apply to the fringe. And I was like, okay, not even remotely thinking we'd get in. And we got in. Um, and she did a wonderful job of just fundraising and getting, you know, hitting up all the rich people at the hedge fund for money who were, to their credit, were all extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this really, I think there's a, the, an image of like finance people as just like not being into that sort of thing. And I, in my experience, they were, they were super supportive. Um, they all came to see it, you know, but we lucked out. We got the Barrow Street Theater. Because, you know, in Fringe, you don't know. You could be right. in the basement somewhere. Right, or you could yeah. be at, you know, we were in Barrow Street Theater, which is like, you know, a 199 seat right. off-Broadway theater. And I remember walking in there, and I was like, we are never going to, I'm never going to get to do a show this nice again for a very long time. And I'm really glad that I had that knowledge that, like, this was not the norm. Um, due to a lot of good marketing on Romina's part um, and just word of mouth, we sold the run out. Mm. And we got a five-star review in timeout, which was, unfortunately, is no longer on the internet. Um, but I have it in print somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I mean, God, that was, and we got a good, we got a good review from NewYorkTheater.com, and I really felt like I have made it. Mm-hmm. I have made it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. I mean, it's a wonderful experience to sell out a 200-person house for like your first production. That's a, it's a high bar mm-hmm. <laughs> going forward. But um, we, it was a wonderful run. I made wonderful friends. We had a great time. But then my next play, Paper Cranes, was produced by Pac Wallop in 2011. And that was a play. I mean, if you look at that play and you look at that play, it like leaps and bounds ahead. Because I was in a room with playwrights who had been doing stuff for a decade. Yeah. Crystal Skillman was in there. Don Nguyen was in there. Alejandro. Who else? God, there's so many playwrights. Um, trying to think of all of them and actors like really good actors like Susan Louise O'Connor who had been doing stuff in the city for years and years um, God, Travis York you know so many people who had just been and you were pushed mm-hmm. and it was like I love this dig deeper and so I wound up writing this weird play about sex and grief and we produced it and it, it um, at the Access Theater, which is a little bit of a downgrade from the Barrow Street Theater, because the Access <laughs> Theater is in Chinatown. Well, the, Tribeca, Soho, whatever, but it's you have to walk up like four flights of very steep stairs. It's a right. lovely theater, and everybody who works there is amazing. Um, and yeah, we did the full four-week, you know, 20-something performance run with four previews, and we mostly got good reviews, and I was like, this is it. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that was not it. <laughs> you know? So, um, it's funny because, you know, we didn't, well, we didn't get a Times review. And if you don't get a Times review, more than likely in New York, unless something weird happens, it's not going to... It's like it didn't happen? It's not necessarily like it didn't happen. I, I, I got a lot of goodwill from people for that play who saw it, so I made a lot of connections. But, yeah, I mean, generally, like... Nobody was going to take that off Broadway. Like, we weren't going to get picked up by someone, you know. Um, and then I almost got an agent and then didn't. Because, um, of course, I mean, it was my first time having an agent go, oh, I'm really, I really want to know about this writer. And, I, you know, and I met with them, and I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to have an agent. I did not get an agent. I in no way got an agent. Um, I didn't get an agent until I was in grad school. But, um, 
when I was a finalist for the O'Neill, but that's all, yeah, it's a whole other thing. But yeah, so it was really crazy sort of time, like going from this like fringe production to going to this like, you know, other production and having such positive feedback and good reviews and like not really moving the needle anywhere. And I feel like that is so, it's such a common story. Mm -hmm. that people don't talk about is that we do the work and sometimes it goes really really well and people like it but it doesn't equal the accolades or the the future productions and it's very as you know it's very difficult to get a second production unless you're in you know college production or something but if it's a world premiere right it's very difficult to get a second production so it was a little, it was a struggle after that to, to sort of be like, okay, well, I've just got to go back to the drawing board and keep going. And that was part of why I wanted to go to grad school because I felt like I had gone as far as I could go by myself, mm-hmm. you know? So that was when I, I decided to apply to grad school because the nice thing about Hunter was that it was in the city. I could work full time, which was probably a terrible decision looking back, but what are you going to do? And, um, uh, it was cheap and I could afford it and it was Tina Howe which mm-hmm. was really the frosting on the cake but I didn't think I was going to get in I mean it was like everything else I applied to I was like I'm going to be runner up like I'm going to get my bridesmaids dress you know they'll, they'll interview me maybe and then they're not going to take me so I had absolutely no idea I would get into that program until I did um, but yeah it was, it was Tina Howe and Mark Bly and they interviewed me I sent them paper cranes that was what I sent them and at the end, they were like, well, we really want you to join us. And I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, what? Like, I hadn't gotten that big of a yes before. So that was um, a really strange moment. And I, I said, like, the most idiotic thing. I was like, well, I have to talk to my husband. Like, like I'm a 50s ad executive. Like, well, I got to <laughs> ask the wife. Uh, but I just didn't know what to say. I was like, I... I was so surprised and I was like, am I really going to do this? Because it's a huge undertaking and it just felt like, oh, this is really real, you know? I, I had kind of a similar experience with grad school because I was waitlisted. I applied to one place. I applied to USC, only to USC. Same, I only applied to one place. Mm-hmm. I got waitlisted. So, you like, the emotional journey is, you know, you apply... You're like, hey, I got to get in. I got to get in. Gotta get in. I was waitlisted. So I'm like, it's not a no. And then I was rejected. So when the rejection comes, like the, the three-year plan that you imagine what life is going to be when you're in school, like you have that. And then the rejection comes. You're like, okay, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I have to re-envision life. Yep. And then a month later, they made me the offer to come yeah. And suddenly it was like, wait, oh, I had oh, already yeah. changed the, my entire life plan again. How do I change it back? Right. <laughs> and it's all psychological, but it just seems like it seemed like it was real. Like I, there was real things that, and there was nothing. Um, but it was like, I, I'm like, I need to think of, there was nothing to think about. I was going to take it, but that yeah. was my response too. like, I have to think about this. They gave me a day yeah. to think about it. They, you know, they were like, oh, well, we want to know by the end of the week. I think it was like a Wednesday. And I yeah. was like, oh, you'll know by tomorrow. I just <laughs> need to like, and I went and I talked to my, and so my husband has a PhD. He's, he, and so he did the whole academia thing. And I think he said to me later, he was like, I didn't want to discourage you, 
but you were so like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> this is no different than my life. Like, I am already have a crazy schedule because, you know, I've worked a nine-to-five job, and I would go do rehearsals at night, and I was out four nights a week and, like, doing shows, and, I, you know, my life was insane, and I was like, this will be no different. And he was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Because he was like, I don't want to. I did not want to discourage you, but you just had absolutely no idea what you were getting yourself into. And so... I t- so I decided to go, and, you know, everybody was super excited for me, and I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be fine. And thank God, I mean, I met my classmates, and we were, like, family from day one. Yeah. We went and had drinks at Blockheads, which is, like, near New World stages. Um, and we had, like, many jumbo margaritas and told each other our life stories. And uh, we were very bonded, and we made an agreement at the beginning. We were like, we are family to each other, and we will support each other no matter what, and there's not going to be petty drama and that was absolutely true. We had each other's backs the whole time. We had a great time in a lot of respects, but it was a thousand times harder than I thought it was going to be. Was there was there anything? By the way, this is one of those moments that I cut out in the final edit. My <laughs> when my, you're like uh. my figuring out the way to word <laughs> the question. That's a good time for me to cough. Everybody thinks that I just have all my questions ready. Oh yeah. Prepared. You know of the. Course. You know the. Uh, behind the scenes work now. Yep. Um, was there like a, something practical that you learned while you were in grad school that changed your approach to your writing? Absolutely. Tina told me that I had to stop writing like somebody had a gun to my head, which I think was the most valuable thing because I, because I was self-taught mostly and because I am a rabid perfectionist and I am horrible to myself Um, I'm becoming less horrible to myself as time goes on but I was just like you need to make this play good like first draft when you're in grad school you don't have time to think about it your first draft is good you need to just write the damn thing because it's due tomorrow so what what was she seeing though that she was seeing my internal struggle with myself and that I was doubting my instincts and that I was doubting my ability and that I was doubting myself the whole time. And so she really was just like, you are great and you are talented and you're not always going to get it right on the first try, but you're not going to know unless you write the damn thing. So write it. Um, and I mean, Tina's like my fairy godmother. You know, she... Um, She's just, like, uh, the most wonderful, like, I've always said she's a cross between a a brilliant professor and a kindergarten teacher. She's kind of both at the same time. So, like, halfway through, we would have snack time. So she would go to Fairway and just get us. We eventually had to be like, Tina, stop bringing so much sugar. Because we all got fat because, like, we didn't have time to eat properly. And so she would bring out, like, you know, (laughs) cookies and cakes. And so we had our break. So we would bring actors in to to read the plays. Um, which was really nice. So we had like a core group of actors who were in and out. So we were always able to see the work on its feet, more or less, which was really helpful. So it's not like we were just reading each other's scripts. We had actors. It was very helpful. But, um, you know, so she but she was always so insightful. Like she would just come out and say something and I'd be like, oh. But it was just like, keep going. You know, keep going. If there's problems, we'll fix them later. But like, don't doubt yourself. And so when I wrote my thesis play, by that point... And that was, I think, the first play I wrote with... I think that was the first full-length play I wrote with Tina. And she was like, you don't shy away from it. She's like, you're going in a really cool direction and don't get scared. Like, keep going. And so I did. And um, that play is called Prepared. And it's actually, hopefully, 
this is still in talks, but is going to get produced. I wrote the play six years ago, and I thought nobody would do it. Um, and so that was my thesis play, um, and I won the Rita and Burton Goldberg Award for it, which was very nice because that paid for a semester of my school. Um, and I had never won anything before. So it was like, oh, I'm a winner of something, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard. I mean, it, Sherry Eden Barber directed it, and she was fantastic, and I loved working with her, and we had a great cast. But it was hard. It was exhausting. And your thesis production, it feels like such a big deal. It's like, oh. So when we graduated, and I won't, I won't put this playwright on blast, but they gave us some very excellent advice when we graduated, which was probably no one is going to touch you for at least a year after you graduate. So take this time, live your life, don't stress out about it, and just accept that probably unless something weird happens, no one's ever going to do your thesis play. And that advice got me through the tumbleweeds of the year, almost two years after I graduated, that like nothing happened. Um, I got an agent my first year of grad school because I was a finalist for the O'Neill. Mm-hmm. That's why that happened, which was great. And then again, I was like, this is it. Right. I have an agent now. Right. That's not how That's it works. That's one of the great playwright myths. It's such and a I, myth. And I, I tell people I learned, all the time. Like, yeah. I remember early on, getting the agent was one of the great things that you needed to achieve. And then when you achieved it, it, it changed everything. No. No. And I mean, I love my agent. She's fantastic. It's very nice to have someone to deal with contract crap when you don't want to do it. But at the end of the day your personal relationships and pounding the pavement and taking meetings is much more valuable than anything they can do. They can send your play out, but you just wind up in another slush pile. Mm-hmm. You just wind up in a different pile. You wind up in a slightly higher pile. Right. But you're still in a pile of plays being sent by hundreds of agents. You just are getting rejected from bigger fish. Mm-hmm. So like, instead of getting rejected by you know a playwriting competition, I was like, the Atlantic passed. It's like, oh, well, all right. Right. Um, but it's definitely is not a panacea at all. And I, I tell young playwrights this all the time when they're so hungry to get an agent. And I'm like, listen, it's great. Like, having an agent is so nice because you can put it on your thing. And whenever there's some annoying professional thing that comes up, they deal with it for you. If somebody tries to review a reading, they can get that stuff taken off the Internet, which has which happened not to me but to other people. Um, but it's definitely not... But I think the problem is in playwriting is that we don't have a lot of signifiers, you know? Like, that's a signifier of, like, you are successful. Mm -hmm. You did something right. Mm -hmm. You are in the club. And it's like, okay, but there are so many unrepresented playwrights who are brilliant. And the reason that they're not repped is, is because of timing and luck. And that's really it. And it was just happened to be that I happened to be a finalist with this weird whale play. And that's... And that's what happened. Um, But I really think that the few years after grad school was when I was my most prolific because I think I took all the tools that I had learned from from Tina and from my other professors and I really was just like, I'm just going to write all the plays. Mm -hmm. So I just went through this period where I wrote like five full-length plays in like four years, which was my fastest because I was just like cranking them out. And I was, you know, I was doing Mission to Ditmar's in the lab and I was bringing my work in so I had feedback and all that stuff and I'd also developed a network of actors I could rely on so often I would invite people over to my house for pizza and wine 
Um, Because, I mean, you can get people to do anything if you buy them pizza and give them wine, you know. Sure. Like, come over. I'm going to treat you to some food. And I'm I'm very fortunate that I have disposable income to do that. Um, But it's the best way to get your play heard is, like, that first draft that you're just like, oh, have a bunch of people you trust in a room. And then suddenly you can can start to figure out what you need to do next. Yeah, and famously... Theater people are some of the most generous people you will encounter. Oh you know, we're in an art form where collaboration is so valuable that not a sing, no one single person can do everything that it takes to yeah. make a play. So we're all so accustomed to collaborating and needing partners to make things happen that we end up being giving of ourselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, actors who do new play development are, like, my heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're so, oftentimes, they're so smart, and they'll just say something, and I'm like, oh, right. And I think my acting background helped tremendously with playwriting because I know what not to do, and I know, like, uh, sort of how they think, which makes it easier. But sometimes when you're in the room by yourself, like, you don't know. And that's the thing about playwriting is, like, I feel like we're also, especially now with the pandemic, like we're so starved. I just want to be in a room rehearsing. Like, I don't even care, like, where the theater is. Like, I love rehearsal. Rehearsal is where I get my good work done. I don't, I don't tend to rewrite really well by myself. I can do cosmetics. I can do basic stuff. But, like, really, I need to see it in space. I need the actors holding the books, walking around, seeing how they move, seeing how they breathe. That's what gives me the tools to revise the play. Um, And we don't get to do it enough. And Mm -hmm. that's the thing that, I mean, obviously I've been struggling with since we've all been trapped in the house. It's like, I don't have, I haven't had that. Um, So it was was hard to even imagine writing a play because I was just like, how am I even going to, on Zoom? I mean, it's fine. For existing work, Zoom was fine. But for new work, for me, Mm -hmm. I was just like, it's not it's not gonna work but yeah I'm a very collaborative playwright like I'm not I always say I've said to my actors a million times I'm like it's not Shakespeare so like you know if you flub a line like I'm not gonna get offended and a lot of the times um with actors like if there's a line that they keep tripping up on 95% of the time it's it's me and not them um if there's a line they keep missing or they're saying it wrong, that's something that I did wrong and not something they did wrong. And 95% of the time that turns out to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the play is only as good as the people you make the play with. In that, in that uh, four year period where you wrote five plays, was there any sort of like thematic connective tissue of what you were writing? Uh, I was really, I mean, what we were gearing up to, well, so I graduated in 2015, so we were in a really weird gearing up to the 2016 election time, um, and I was seeing the level of harassment that women were getting online. I experienced some myself um, to a smaller degree, but I did, and um, I think I was really like, I need to write women, and I need to write women's stories, and so my play, The Worst Mother in the World, was about postpartum depression. Wendy and the Neckbeards is about the targeted online harassment of women. Hyannis is about, like, maternal people. Um, it, you know, the, the matriarchs of a family. Prepared was my thesis play, and that was about a mother and her son. So it was a very, you know, female-centered work. And I was kind of screaming into the void of, like, pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in this, we're in a not great place right now. Um, and I just really did feel like I was screaming into a void. And then 
Trump got elected and it was just like and then I wrote my play The Diver which is like kind of a post-apocalyptic New York play um, about climate change in part so um, yeah it was like a lot of dark stuff but a lot of funny stuff and a lot of rage a lot of rage and a lot of heartbreak went into those plays and I think that that they all did pretty well in the submissions game. I mean, we joke, my agent and I joke all the time that I have a closet full of bridesmaids' dresses. I uh, I have been a semi-finalist or a finalist. It sounds like a brag, but it's, like, funny at this point for, like, everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I felt kind of mad about it for a little while, but now I'm kind of like, no, you know what? That's good. That's good. That's a positive thing because this is also subjective. And I realized that when we – we're accepting writers into Mission to Dimars and we did a submission process. And we, we, I think our busiest year, we got like 50 or 60 plays. And so we had a reading committee and then they would kind of veto it, you know, from our existing writers and then they'd kick it back up to us. But we had to read like, you know, 15 to 20 full length plays. And the, com- the hours of conversation and debate to let four writers into the group gave me this real perspective on how difficult it is to choose people because you're not just choosing their work you're like how is this person going to fit in with the existing group that we have how is their work going to fit in how do they fit in as a person like what do we need like we need to balance the scales and so like it gave me just like a lot more perspective on how hard it is but I still think there's just not enough opportunities I don't know how to make more but there's there's not enough no there isn't there'll never be enough no opportunities <laughs> no. because there's no just slots never-ending supply of of writers out there trying to do mm-hmm. what we're all doing and there's this whether acknowledged or unacknowledged competition with you and I are in competition with each other mm-hmm. uh, and uh, whether we choose to accept it or not it's, it's still true though it's yeah. just still there yeah we all are yeah it's very easy I think I think the thing about this year because I chose when the pandemic started I chose to just not submit first of all I didn't have a new play I've submitted all my plays. They're thoroughly submitted. And I said to myself, you know, I just, I don't want this right now. And I feel like the submission cycle started to become toxic for me. And I don't know when exactly that happened, but I started to feel this real pressure to have a full length play done every year to hit that submission cycle. And I feel like it started to become sort of a hamster wheel of frustration Mm. and self-doubt and it was not good for my work and so this year when I'm seeing all these season announcements I'm just like I'm usually always happy for people but I'm happy for people and not disappointed you know what I mean like I just get to see like oh my god my friend's getting produced at the Geffen you know that's amazing like somebody I know oh my god that's incredible like I'm so excited for them and I don't have that deep sort of like oh but oh no but me not me again you know so that's been really eye-opening for me is that theater there's like theater as an industry and then like theater as a development hub and then like theater writ large and I feel like I'm trying to reconnect to that initial impulse I had as a kid of like why do I do this I do it because I enjoy it and if I'm not enjoying it why am I doing it yeah so that's that leads to my next question like is is the is the following your joy what keeps you through writing through that whole time of of being a bridesmaid oh yeah yeah I think and it's also just like keep going um 
there is a certain level of like if you stick around long enough stuff will start to happen you know um and so yeah it's the joy and it's also like this is what I do I don't know how to do anything else like I'm a playwright that's what I am like Mm -hmm. I'm working on tv and well I was you know the pandemic has tossed everything into the air but like I was working on tv and film stuff I've written some prose none of it gives me the joy of being in the room with actors and directors and making a living thing Mm -hmm. and I don't think anything will replace that even if I do choose to go a different direction you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing different kinds of media. I think that's great. I think the more versatile you can be, the more likely you are to be able to make a living. But at the same time, I'm kind of accepting, like, I have a day job and I'm a theater artist. Mm-hmm. And if that's what I am, that's fine. I don't need to be at Steppenwolf. You know, it would be nice. But I don't, I don't think that I need this sort of institutional validation the way that I felt that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's age and experience and maybe that's just realizing the odds are stacked but at the same time I also feel like that can be really toxic and I've seen a lot of people just quit because the disappointment is too much yeah I mean I talked about that uh, at the beginning of um, a recent episode I say recent because I don't know when this one's going to end but uh, an episode I did in June mm-hmm. I talked about that uh, the people, our, our colleagues who have decided to turn away from the theater because that the p- constant pain of rejection is just like too much. The being a bridesmaid time and time again is just too much. And I get it. It's hard. Uh, and I can't imagine ever getting to that point because I feel very similar to what you just said. Like, this is this is who I am and I can't imagine doing anything else. But I also have learned at my age that I have no idea what the future looks like. No. Like, I don't know what five years from now will look like and how no. I will feel and, and what life any... circumstances might, uh, like, impact the way I feel about the world. Yeah. I mean, if 2020 taught us anything, we don't know. And I feel like that really drove home to me that, like, uh, you know, I don't remember what this quote is attributed to, but life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And it's, like, absolutely true. I mean... I had a grand plan to go be out of town for three months at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, I had a production set up in L.A. I was going to go to, you know, Oregon. I was going to go see my brother. Like, I was going to go do all these things. And it all fell apart. Like, every single plan I had, I just watched, like, dominoes, just the whole thing fall down. And it's really humbling. It's like, no, we have absolutely no control over what happens. Um, And I couldn't, I don't know what your experience was like writing in the pandemic, but for me, it was like snorkeling through jello. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It was was kind of remarkable to me because I used to brag on my discipline. Me too. On my ability. I was like, I write every day almost. To just go, 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 go. But the combination of a layoff and pandemic life changing the structure of my week Mm -hmm. I I couldn't really figure it out it took me such a long time it wasn't until I rewrote plenty during the the pandemic Mm -hmm. that was the easy thing to do because you've already got you've already got existing work was not a problem yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. it took me until February of 2021 to write something new an entire year like like the end of the full year is when I was able to start I'm still not entirely new. there. I um, so yeah, it's funny. So I did the um, I did Ashland New Place Festival in October with my play Hyannis, 
which I would have loved to have actually gone to Ashland. But the cool thing about that was that I feel like more people saw it than would have ordinarily. And I had a wonderful rehearsal process. My director, Adrian Campbell-Holt, was fantastic. I had an amazing cast. The people at Ashland are just like the best. I love them all. Like Kyle Hayden, who just stepped down as AD, but he's fantastic. Jackie Apodaca is now the AD. Um, they were so supportive and so wonderful. And David Hilder, who was my Hunter classmate, was also in it. So that was really cool. So I had like a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a really great time, but it was so weird sitting on my couch watching my play go up and having no, like I had no, it was going to do what it was going to do. But I got a ton of rewriting done and I was like, okay, this Zoom thing can work. I don't know how I would feel developing brand new work on it. I mm-hmm. feel like there's some, there is a disconnect and you don't get the cool thing of like you make a friend, like you both went to the vending machine at the same time and you're chit-chatting, <laughs> you know, or like going out for drinks after and like telling each other your life stories. You didn't have that. So it was always it's a little stilted and it's a little uncomfortable at first, but the actual work was good. And then I had a Zoom production of my two-hander award season with Pulley and Buttonhole Theater, which is a small theater outside of Philly, um, a couple months ago in April. And uh, that was brand new play. That was like wet ink that I threw up on New Play Exchange. It was like the last thing I wrote before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I had had like weird feedback on it and I wasn't kind of sure like what it was supposed to be and I wound up in a room with these three insanely smart women who shepherded me through figuring out what the play was about Mm -hmm. and once we got to the core of what the play was about I was able to do a massive amount of rewrites and now it's in good enough shape to send out so that's fantastic but as far as new work what is that play about that play is about a young a younger actress of color and an older an older actress who I say is Meryl Streep but not uh, love you Meryl but you know in that age range um, and the younger actress is going to come out with allegations of sexual harassment against the producer of their movie for which they have both been nominated for an Oscar the younger actress supporting and the older actress lead and they uh, they have a big she's in the younger actress Kim is invited over to Diane's palatial home for a drink and celebration. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. You can't see. Um, And it turns into kind of a confrontation of why are you doing this? You're going to ruin our movie. You're going to ruin the Oscars. Like, and it's sort of like about the generational divide between women who have just accepted this sort of harassment as part of the cost of doing business and the younger women coming up who are like, we're not going to stand for this anymore and sort of that kind of conflict. Um, and it's really funny as we hear today that Cosby's conviction was overturned, that we're still, I can't, that we're still, we're still in the thick of this and it's, it's thorny and it's not cute and neither of them are on their best behavior the entire time. But it's, I think that what they showed me was that it's a play about the cycle of abuse and I think that's something that I'm really fascinated with is how we just keep doing the same shit over and over and over again and until the society gets a grip on the fact that this is a cycle and these things are going to keep happening unless we do something about it and we confront our own abuse in our family and abuse in relationships like it's going to carry through to the workplace and it's going to carry through to the art um, and so yeah I was really happy with that um, 
So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with the play in the future, but it was really nice. And, like, more, again, more people got to see it because it was on Zoom, which was awesome. So that was a, that was a really nice thing to have after a very difficult year. Um, my husband's mom died in November, and he had COVID last spring, and so it's just been, like, one crisis after the other. So it was just, like, really nice to have this um, love, these two lovely theatrical experiences in a different setting. Um, and I was, I don't know about you, I was very down on Zoom theater when this started. I... I was, I, like, publicly I've been, about it. I've I know. been up and down. Like, when it when this first thing, when this whole thing started, uh, you know, lockdown started, or quarantine started, whatever you want to call it, the day before the first day of rehearsals for a play, for my for one of my plays. Right. And so we, we had our first we had our table work mm-hmm. over zoom and as everybody can remember the first few weeks of zoom of of, of quarantine uh it was only going to be a couple weeks or a month long so there was like an uh, a supposed end point at that mm-hmm. point so it was just temporary yeah. so my experience was this is just a temporary tool to get through to bridge to when we're back in person and then that month went to two months to three months and then it was at the three month point where we were like oh there's there is no production we there's no end to this and um i i was i was watching things over zoom i was watching fully staged like some of the shows that were fully staged they filmed real quick Mm -hmm. um and then streamed i watched some of them and and I liked I liked some things that I saw, but my really my opinion came from the fact that I was spending the day on my computer doing doing work, mm-hmm. and then when, when the evening came and there was a reading or a production or some kind of thing, it. and it's back on the computer again for another two to three hours, it was just too exhausting. It's really tiring. The only way I could deal with it was I was, um, I have Apple TV, so I was streaming my laptop to my TV in my mm-hmm. living room because at least then I'm not like sitting at my desk where I've been for nine hours a day. So I was able to watch that way, but it's still, and I feel like there are some plays that are great on Zoom and there are some plays that like don't work on Zoom at all. Mm-hmm. Like super theatrical, poetic language, like two and a half hours long, not gonna work on zoom yeah a 90 minute two-hander gonna work fine on zoom totally possible you know yeah it depends on the play my my friend spencer davis who's a playwright and director in chicago wrote a play for for zoom and i watched that and it was like i really admired it like i really Mm -hmm. admired the ingenuity of it and the fact that the story was written for the format and um, it was just really, you know, it was well written, well produced, well directed. Um, but as far as like, I was having a hard time following readings. Uh, I tried, like, I tried, I tried to watch them, and I, I was just having a hard time because it was, and it was mostly because of just like exhaustion. Well, and it was the, there was that New York Times article about how we were all languishing, and I think that was really a great word was that I just didn't yeah. want to do much of anything except, like, watch stupid television mm-hmm. and and have wine and eat food. Like, that was... Uh, 
it was really it was really hard at first because I just couldn't accept I'm like who am I like I am not a person who just sits around my apartment all day and I just felt like a baby bird like flying into windows and I just was so frustrated and like losing and then like losing all the walking and losing all of like the you know and I was like still exercising but like just continued to gain weight no matter what I did and like so then I was like struggling with body image and then like struggling with depression and like everybody I knew was in the bell jar. I mean, nobody was having a good time. And it was just trying to find like any nugget of joy or motivation. And the only thing I found in that was like starting to paint because it gave me something to do that was creative, that had no pressure, mm-hmm. that it was just like, okay. But I just, I mean, still, I'm still struggling with writing and I'm. I think I'm giving myself the rest of the summer to just be a person. And I think that I'm, I've am i learned how to just be a person who can enjoy my own company. And I don't think that I was capable of that before. Um, I am not the kind of person who likes to be alone with their thoughts at all. That's part of why I'm a writer. Um, and so, like, all having to spend, and even though, you know, I, me and my husband was at home and all that stuff, but, like, you're together but alone. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're just sort of existing in a space together all day, and then like, see, so you're just you have to kind of entertain yourself, and any sort of like demons or anything that you had tried to run from were all just like you know coming flying at you. And I think that, I think we all have to process this. Yeah. And I think there's there's always this like, well, we have to respond right now, and I I don't. I don't have a response to this yet, to this no, profoundly no. shattering year. I mean, honestly, I don't feel the motivation or the interest in direct responses. No. I feel like we're going to see our responses mm-hmm. in, in various ways, thematic yeah. ways, indir- indirect ways, that there's going to be those plays that come out in this era that we will look back on and be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I can see why... These I, these plays about this feeling of isolation and and struggle with yeah. What I'm really hoping is that after 9/11, I feel like I really saw this country's inability to deal with grief, mm. and instead of oh, this really earth-shattering thing has happened, like what led us down this path? Like some sort of self-reflection. It was like everything needs to go back to normal immediately. And as we saw, it not only went back to normal, it went crazy train after that, right? Uh, yeah, I literally just said today, and you, you commented on it. I was walking down 23rd Street, and people were openly coughing and sneezing <laughs> without covering their faces as if I know we haven't just been living through this, this like, pandemic, which is like... You're, this is how disease. This is how people are dying. Hundreds well, of thousands of people are I mean, dying. I'm getting over. I'm getting over a cold right now, and I went. I know I, I have to burn my microphone after this. I know you just set it on fire. <laughs> I'm trying to keep my, you know. I desperately wanted to hug you, but I was like, I'm not going to because I'm a responsible person. Um, I just was like, I went out one night. I let my guard down for one night, and I went to a Pride event, and I went to a bar, and like they were checking vaccination status. So I was like, this is fine. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, a bunch of them just popped Dayquil and just like went. And I'm like, what kind of, like, don't go places when you're sick right now. Right. Like, I went to go get a COVID test, because I was, I mean, I'm vaccinated, but I was like, what if I got the Delta variant, you know? And I'm just like... I'm so scared that we're just going to, like, try to act like this didn't happen. 
and it's going to create another cycle of crazy pants like what happened after 9-11 if you look at the media and the right-wing lurch and Fox News and all that stuff and you know freedom fries and all that kind of nonsense and how crazy it got and we're still dealing with the fallout of that and then like just pretending like this didn't happen it's so America so America like we like it's like the slavery thing it's like well it happened a long time ago and I'm like yeah okay but it's been having ramifications ever since and like unless we deal with it it's not going to get better for anyone especially the people who are the victims of it I mean they're 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 already saying this about January 6th yeah, something like, happened oh, six months ago but it all it was that's in the past like let's not I mean honestly for me that was one of the scariest I was watching that I feel like I dissociated for a minute like I had this like weird 9-11 flashback and that I felt like I wasn't watching like it wasn't happening because it was so crazy and surreal and terrifying because I was like what if they what if they kill people what if they like take down the government you know and I mean right that's the extreme version but I mean they got pretty damn close they got pretty damn close like we're lucky and I don't think people realize how close we were to losing everything. And the pandemic, how close we were to losing everything. If these vaccines hadn't come out, I don't know. And so I'm still figuring out who I am as a writer in this situation. And right now I don't know, and I think that's okay. And I think it's great if you wrote your King Lear. Remember that when the, on Twitter? When right at was the like, beginning. Yeah. King, well, King Lear, uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague. And I'm like, uh okay good for billy shakes i mean that's great for him um but i think this this expectation to produce is like so peak capitalism it's like well you can't process anything you just got to keep churning work out and i i finally came to this realization that like anything i write right now is just going to be like word salad and i mean i write a little bit in my journal i have ideas like i'm thinking about doing a solo show i don't know why i would do this to myself but i think these things but at least they're ideas but I feel like my ideas right now are like little like moths and I like I'm trying to like catch them and they like fly out of my hands. So nothing is sticking yet, but that's okay. And I feel like it would have been giving me a massive anxiety a while ago and now I'm just kind of like I'm just going to like spend the rest of my summer like getting to I don't know see my best friend who I haven't seen in 2 years, getting to see my brother who I haven't seen in 2 years and just like being a person in the world. Well, what's 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 great about that to me is it relates to advice I try to give to to new playwrights, mm -hmm. to playwright students, and that is uh, writing isn't the only thing you should be doing. No. Like there is like a whole world that should be. I mean, the pressure shouldn't be to experience the entirety of the world, but there is life. <laughs> no. There is life that should be lived, yeah. uh, and that life is is all around you there is news to be read there are just things to be learned mm -hmm. that that there's more to being a playwright than the time at your computer or at your notepad oh yeah and i i feel like part of my struggle this year with writing is i had no experiences to draw from i wasn't going anywhere mm -hmm. so i was having to rely solely on my imagination and that's all fun and games when you're 10 and, you know, your brain is just popping with imagination. But, you know, when you're older, um, you can't... I, I draw from experiences. I draw from conversations I've had with people. I draw from places I've been. Um, I didn't have anything to draw from. I just felt like the well was dry and there was 
there was nothing I could there was nothing I could come up with that felt uh, tangible it all just felt like oh well I'm writing this thing but why who's gonna see it and then like you know I was trying to struggle bus and write a tv pilot and like I just didn't have it in me I just didn't and I it, it took me a really long time to just be like and that's okay because no one's waiting with bated breath for the next, you know, KBQ work, you know. It's not like, you know, I, we put all this pressure on ourselves. And I think that I'm going to try really hard not to do that as much from now on. Um, I'm so used to, like, being my own boss in terms of, like, you need to do the work. Um, and, like, making myself do things. But now I'm just kind of like, well... For right now, I think I'm just going to be a person and I'm going to do my paints and the writing will come. It always does. And I just have to have faith that it will. Um, it's nerve wracking, though, because this is like uncharted territory. But hopefully life is somewhat returning somewhat to normal. Maybe we'll have a time this year that we won't be trapped in the house. <laughs> I'm a little scared of like what happens in the fall and it gets cold and the variants and all that stuff, but I can't think about it because then I just spin out. Because as you pointed out, we can't make plans. Like, we have to take everything day to day. Um, but I can't wait to get back into a room, into a rehearsal room, even if that's just for, like, a little reading or just fun. Like, just to play would be would be really fun. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But we'll see. Thank you to Gary Bentley Quinn for being awesome. I can't wait to have another face-to-face -face conversation with you, hopefully in the near future. Thank you to Diamond Dogs, the bar in Astoria, Queens, who probably didn't even know we were recording a podcast on their patio, but thank you nonetheless. Thanks to Rob Weiner Kent and American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. This episode was produced and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is our associate producer. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Light Switch by Dave Osmondson. Great play, great writer. Check it out.